uh, a big part of what I do is when we put on these sports camps for kids with disabilities, I've got to raise all the money for it. Uh, Dave and I have committed to never charging a family uh, for our events, even though the costs have gotten pretty, pretty steep. Um, and so as we've been able to raise more money, get more sponsorships, and kind of a salvation thing for us, believe it or not, is I created my own uh, product line. Instead of doing cookies and popcorn like the Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, I chose a raw local honey. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all new, all natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe bomb today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is a former national champion at Taylor University, part of the NCCAA. He transferred from there on a full ride to Georgia to be a Division I runner. Um, he is the co-founder of Disability Dream and Do, sometimes referred to as D3Day. We'll get into that as we get going author of the recent book, I think it just came out last year, A Pound of Kindness, a story about Dave Clark and his childhood. And he's also working on a new book, which we're going to talk about. Welcome to the show, Doug Cornfield. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for having me here. It's, it's a pleasure. Yeah, yeah thanks for, thanks for uh, making the adjustment. It's anytime we're doing this like time zone swap, which most people are not in the central time zone with me, uh, it's always a matter of all right, what time are we actually talking about? Are we all right. on the same page? Are we all going to make it? Um, so, yeah, I appreciate you coming coming to chat with me. Uh, I, I'm sure you have a lot going on. What t- Before we got going, you were telling me um, what were you doing this morning, and then uh, we got we got off track and forgot we were uh, supposed to talk this afternoon. Oh, so, I mean, basically, we have – very limited disability sports camps going on this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had seven of them scheduled with uh, minor league teams and one here in Corning. Uh, we had already done a um, football event during the Super Bowl uh, where Dave Clark and I were the speakers at an event. Uh, you know, they had both side cheerleaders there and, and some of the ESPN guys were there, that kind of thing. And um, so that was really the only event that we've done this year. So it's a very, very odd year um, for everything to get canceled. But uh, a big part of what I do is when we put on these sports camps for kids with disabilities, I've got to raise all the money for it. Uh, Dave and I have committed to never charging a family uh, for our events, even though the costs have gotten pretty, pretty steep. Um, and so as we've been able to raise more money, get more sponsorships and kind of a salvation thing for us, believe it or not, is I created my own uh, product line instead of doing cookies and popcorn, like the Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, I chose a raw local honey. And uh, you would not believe how much honey we sell to make these camps free. And I have two adult children that work with me full time. And we kind of made it a collector's mug. I, I, I cut Dave Clark's and now Dave Stevens and my children's book logos into a mug with a handle. We fill it with honey and then we have all sorts of other products, cheese, syrup, um, my children's book, of course. And, and that's how we continue to raise money so that we never have to charge these families um, anything for the camps. And so that's a big part of kind of our small business to support um, the free camps that we do. 
See, and it, it, that kind of thing probably comes more naturally to both of us and probably even more so you um, than most people. But I, you know, there's, I'm sure you probably encountered this growing up and with your kids probably have seen it too. It's just like, there's all these fundraisers and kids end up selling stuff and they only get such a small fraction of it versus like in you know your case where you're able to source that product you can keep a larger proportion to go towards you know for you the 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 camps but it it almost and maybe it's a skill set thing you know but it just I see it so much I'm like I feel like this could be done better and like the kids could sell less sell things that make more sense to like their community and then also benefit more so did was that just a simple matter of economics or how did that come together so you know when we first started doing the camps Dave Clark and I which now go back uh, over 10 years ago I left the Merrill Lynch office and uh, you know and all of a sudden you you start you're, you have these great ideas and you start putting your business plans together and all those kind of things and then you gotta you gotta figure out where's your funding come from um, and originally I put children's books on my plate I put movie scripts and documentaries and Things like movies don't get funded overnight. And Dave Clark wanted me to do more sports camps. And so all of a sudden we're realizing, you know what, I'm flying to Florida, I'm doing these camps. We've got more of the, you know, the Mets wanted to do a camp with us. The Phillies wanted to do a camp with us. The Twins added, wanted to add a camp. And, you know, minor league teams aren't really necessarily rolling in it. So we had to figure out how to fund it. And a guy came to me with an idea of doing honey um, to sell for us. And... Basically, we put a product together. Um, one thing led to the other. I didn't realize how much people loved honey, uh, but I had a great source of quality honey. Uh, and so I kind of take a lot of pride. I don't put anything that's not great on my tables, um, whether it's my children's book, whether it's our honey, our syrup, uh, the cheeses that we have literally go all the way up to 13 years age. People can't believe they walk up down the street in Corning and find 13 year age cheese staring them in the face. And so we just had to figure it out. And it was really out of desperation. Um, and Dave Clark correlates that to his story as a professional baseball player that virtually had no use of his legs playing on crutches. Um, he calls the knuckleball his des desperation pitch. And so our honey was our desperation pitch of, you know what, these camps are costing us a lot of money. And then I realized we could sell in a weekend in the beginning, you know, I sold two or three thousand dollars one time at a little event in a weekend, and I'm like, "Holy crap! How do we do more of this?" Um, and so it just kind of added from there. And we we tend to do a big fundraiser. It's, I say big. It's it's uh it's not um, huge, but we do it at our local mall at Christmas time, and uh, because nobody wants to see you as a business person during Christmas time, and so we spend the six weeks at our local mall. It's about 10, 15 minutes away, and. And now people know us for our local products. And so people actually come and search us out. And so it's, it's, gotten, it's gotten really uh, interesting from there. Hopefully you don't hear my granddaughter in the background here, but that makes our Zoom meetings more interesting uh, when uh, we're at home doing this stuff. So that's kind of the nutshell. We, uh, long story is just, so it was a desperation thing. And we needed a constant revenue and believe it, honey became our constant revenue. It's one of those things where I think about, and uh, I didn't know whether, you know, we had talked about possibly having Dave join us. So I didn't know whether we would talk with Dave or not, not a big deal. Um, but I, when I think about Dave, um, his story, maybe the things that he talked about, you know, you're talking about this situation. Um, I always think about 
when there when there's a problem or when there where there's an obstacle there's often an opportunity you know when you say we can't do this or this is a problem and this is this you know thing is going to happen or we're going to run into this wall I, I feel like sometimes some people will shut down and just be like well that's it like it's over with and then other people will say oh okay this is our goal how can we achieve it yeah we can't do that that's a brick wall but you know can we go under the wall can we go over the wall can we get a sledgehammer and knock through the wall like what can we do to get through that so you know that's kind of kind of really leads into one of our mottos uh, with the sports camps that we do um and i probably wouldn't be sane if it weren't for this statement that i'm going to tell you uh, when you're dealing with uh, somewhat, somewhere up to 100 families with differing disabilities, different situations from intellectual to physical needs to all sorts of different situations, uh, the crazy part of it is there's a lot of problems, you know, and, and I want people to feel relaxed. And really, this statement comes from a friend of mine who is a contractor, construction guy, and he was helping me remodel my own basement. This is several years ago. And I've done some construction work, but you know, I'm not the best. And so I was helping him remodel my own basement and I was afraid to make mistakes. And he came up, he told me, you know, the saying, and I think other people have used it's even in a John Lennon song, no problems, just solutions. And it freed me up to, to help him more because so what if I make a mistake, he'll fix it or we'll fix it. And so at the camps, I try to correlate that no problems, just solutions, because we've run into some significant problems. And when we have those problems, I take a deep breath and try not to get riled by the problem and immediately saying, okay, what are our solutions? What can we do here? And then you have a story like Dave Clark and my other Dave, Dave Stevens, and my son Gideon. I have a son who was born with neither arm developed. And so you, you put all that together and okay, this, these are a problem but let's not focus on the problem. Let's figure out what you can do. Let's figure out what our, our situation is. And so what you just said leads into exactly what we kind of want to have people feel at our sports camps, uh, but also how we have to respond and act as well. You know, is that, is that a matter of, you know, you, you have the sports camps, but are you, I assume you're not just teaching sports. You're, it seems like, uh, you know, you're an example of this as well as Dave. So, you know, even though it's, you know, the book you wrote is like a, a story from Dave's childhood and, it, you know, a lot of, I'll say the press centers around Dave. I still think you have an example of this too, where it's just teaching a, I'll call it a philosophy or a way of thinking. Um, is that what's going on at the camp and the sports is just the wrapping Yes. Um, you know, as we've been able to kind of analyze what happens at our sports camps, it gets very multifaceted um, because it's not just we're just playing baseball. If it was just about, hey, we're playing baseball with kids with limitations, disabilities, whatever you want to call it, special needs, then it'd be cool. But that's not really what's going on. Uh, what's going on is so much bigger, so much broad, broader. I mean, first off, I'm a parent with a child with limitations. So I can relate to these families in a way that not everybody can. Mm -hmm. And so that's one angle that we're looking at. And so because of me, m most of the messaging 
actually is toward the parents and the caregiver. It's not toward the participants who just want to get out there and play. And I can give you some examples. And then I'm bringing Dave Clark and Dave Stevens to the plate, who are guys that had some serious blows, either as Dave as a 10-month-old getting polio, Dave Clark, and Dave Stevens being born with neither leg. And both of those men, what they've gone on to accomplish in spite of their situations um, is, a, is an incredible opportunity for me to let these parents know that just because you have a child with special needs doesn't mean they're not going to have a great life. doesn't mean they can't be successful. They might have to do it differently. They might have to um, walk, talk, act, think, uh, outside the box, all those kind of things. But until they try, they're not going to know. And so our messaging is, is very in line with that. And, and kind of one of the examples that I use often is that we have parents that come up to us after the camp, or I'll even hear it during the camp, where they'll, they'll tell me, I didn't know my son or daughter could do that. And the bottom line is because they were never given a chance. Mm -hmm. They were just immediately, oh, they have this disability. They can't hit a ball. They can't throw a ball. Um, and so they find out very differently. And then I think it opens up their minds by hearing our stories kind of cultivate into the camp. And uh, just to kind of then go on the other level, uh, one of my favorite things is when I'm bringing Dave Clark and Dave Stevens into the locker room uh, with these young pro players. Typically it's single A to triple A is where we are focused. And uh, we're in like a spring training locker room down in Florida or the double A meds. I mean, we've even had Tim Tebow and, you know, at our camps, that kind of thing. And here I'm bringing in this guy who's 60, now 67 years old. He's pulling up in a scooter, gets up on his crutches and tells people about his 10 year career of pitching in the minor leagues. And, you know, these guys get pretty bright eyed and, but Dave, that's probably his best element. And when I'm talking about Dave, Dave Clark at this point, um, because he connects with these players because he knows what it's like. Mm -hmm. to be on the road, to be underpaid. You know, they think all these minor league guys are getting paid um, incredibly well. I mean, they're working 20 hours a day, basically, because their whole life is baseball. They don't get a break. And um, yes, they're treated well, you know, at that double A, single A, triple A level um, compared to probably what Dave Clark had, but it's a grind mm -hmm. and Dave can relate to them. And then these players get to find out about this guy that overcame and then they get to go out and participate and see how privileged they really are and how fortunate, maybe not privileged is the right word because they've, they've worked hard to get to where they, they are, but they're very fortunate and it's a privilege to be at the level that they're at. And I think they get to experience that very deeply at our camps. Sometimes I think it's easy um, in this I think this goes for anybody, regardless of whether we're talking about um, somebody with limitations or somebody who's able-bodied. I, I think it's easy to become complacent with the things you have, right? And be like, uh, you know, it, like it, it's it's this balance between the, the the struggle and the drive for more, and also being grateful for the things that you already have, right? Because well, it's like, I mean, especially those guys who who want to make it to the majors. I mean, they wouldn't be out there doing the grind if they didn't want to make it. It's right. just, you know, so it's like, there's that singular focus, but then also the ability to forget about like, I have the physical ability. 
I had the background that helped me get here. I was able to spend all the time and put in the, all the effort. So it's, yeah, it's, it's sometimes it's tough to keep in mind how fortunate each one of us is in our own ways for the various, you know, talents and opportunities we've had come our way. Right. Well, we see, we see families and this doesn't happen as much anymore because we have, you know, 80 to a hundred families that uh, are participants. So we can't run them all through the locker rooms and things like that. But every once in a while, uh, there's a kid that gets taken into the locker room or the family gets taken into the locker room, or I'll bring one of my sponsors who's a local business person into the locker room. And they get so excited about going to in this professional locker room, like it's going to Disneyland. Mm -hmm. And, but as a player, they don't realize what a privilege it is to be in the inner circle. And, um, and I think our event and meeting Dave and my other Dave, um, we kind of hone that into these young pro players that it's a privilege to be where you are, fellas, and it's not going to last forever. Um, so remember it and uh, work it all the way up as far and take it as far as you can. But just remember, it's a privilege to be in this locker room. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of want to back up a little bit yeah. in, in trying to figure out where, how, how did you come about to meet Dave in, in the beginning? So how did, I mean, how did that all come together? Sometimes I think we uh, met each other in, in past lives because it's, it's kind of one of those things because it's, it's kind of crazy to be honest. Mm -hmm. and, and even to be doing what I'm doing and traveling all over the country with him, and, you know, I'm on the phone almost every day, you know, we're talking about something, whether it's personal or business. And, um, but basically I was living in Atlanta because of being a Georgia, you know, being a Georgia Bulldog. My, I had five kids, uh, in the nineties in Atlanta and my fifth child was born with neither arm developed, as I had mentioned earlier. And so he was pretty young at the time, um, 2000, he went about, about one and a half years old. And we were moving our family back to Corning, New York, where my wife and I met and where she grew up. And during that transition, of moving a family of seven. Um, I was studying for my series seven at Merrill Lynch at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I was doing the back and forth thing, flying back and forth between Atlanta and Corning while my family was, my wife was getting ready to move and all that stuff. I was looking for a place to live and whatever and studying. And while I was studying, I was reading a newspaper article and Dave Clark had gotten the heroes of sports award in I think 1999, but this was an article in 2000. And somehow I'm reading this article. I think it was in the Atlanta Journal or Atlanta Constitution. And it's talking about this guy who played professional baseball on crutches. And I grew up in the athletic world. My father was a world-class runner. Um, you know, you already know I was at Georgia and I played basketball. I did all the sports. That's kind of how we grew up. And played basketball, softball, did, you know, just we, we wanted to play everything. And you know, and I knew sports. Um, I mean, I got to meet people like Jesse Owens and OJ Simpson and Bruce Jenner when he was still Bruce and all those kind of things uh, as a kid. And that was kind of the norm for me. And so when I'm finding out there's a baseball player that played professional baseball on crutches, I'm like, okay, what gimmick was this? Mm -hmm. What was it? I don't get it. I don't understand. And then to make the story even more crazy, it said he was from Corning, New York which was my wife's hometown. 
and that did, that made less sense. And so I remember um, going into my office and talking to my older brother, Kurt, and I said, hey, who's this Dave Clark guy? Do you know this Dave? He goes, yeah, yeah, I know Dave. And um, my brother used to be the director of the local YMCA here before he was at Merrill Lynch. And just kind of a long story short, I was like, oh, my gosh, uh, I got to probably meet this guy. And, you know, and at that time, I was hunting for new clients as well as I was very intrigued with his story. So mm -hmm. I had multiple reasons to kind of try to network and contact him. And I went to a baseball game that he was coaching locally. Dave had just finished a 10-year career of pitching in the major leagues or coaching in the major leagues of Sweden. He was a three-time manager, championship coach, um, but he retired from that and he moved back to Corning. Uh, the same year I was moving to Corning. And he was just part-time coach at a local professional team about 20 minutes away in Elmira, New York. And he was just a home. He was just pitching coach when they were at home. And I think he was scouting for the San Diego Padres at the time. And I had my son Gideon, I believe in my arms. And after the game, I went over to the dugout and asked Dave if, uh, if he had a minute and um, he wound up coming out and talking to me. Um, I don't know, five or 10 minutes or so enough to get a cell phone number and we set up a breakfast meeting. And so we had a breakfast meeting a few weeks after that. And, um, the one thing that I can remember about the breakfast meeting that I tell people is that when we got done, Dave shared with me that nobody had ever asked him questions like I was asking him. And I think the reason of that is because I was asking him questions about what his parents did. I wanted to know what his parents did. You know, I had a child that was one and a half at the time that you, you don't know how that's going to progress. It's got significant limitations. I wanted to know principles of what Dave's parents did. And, and then that forged a friendship. And then I got to know more about his story. I couldn't believe his story. I still call it the greatest, mostly unknown sports story for those that don't know his story. It's wacky, crazy. And, and then of course I start getting, uh, this should be a movie and this should be this and this should be that. And, mm -hmm. and um, instead of just dreaming about it, I started working on those things. See, it, it, it makes you reminds me of, I, I don't know why I just blanked on his name. And a previous case guest I've had who um, was born without one of his legs and he trained to become, he didn't quite make it. He was trained to become a Paralympic swimmer. And, uh, I think he was talking about himself. He maybe he was telling me about uh, another person, but he had, I believe he had mentioned again. Hopefully, my memory's not faulty. Um, that he wasn't treated like his parents didn't treat him really any different. It's like you've got to navigate the world just like anybody else has to navigate the world. You know, maybe you, yeah, you don't have that limb like everybody else does, but that isn't you know, an excuse to feel sorry for yourself. Like you right. still have the ability to go out there and spend in his case, swim, be in the, you know, be the best swimmer he can be all that kind of stuff. Right. So I'm curious if you could share, I guess what Dave maybe shared with you and what you do. Very similar. It's first off, you know, big messaging is don't hold your children back just because they have limitations, you know, and every, but every situation is different there. You've got, kids with intellectual situations that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. You have physical, you have both. And so you obviously don't let a child go who's just going to walk into the middle of the street and get hit by a car. Right, right. Uh, so there's, but on the other hand, 
and it's easier coming from Dave here because he is the guy that lost the use of his legs to polio. Yeah. And, um, you know, so when he shares that, I think it has a lot more weight when he tells the parents, Hey, let the leash go a little bit. You know, they might fall. They might even get hurt a little bit. The chances are we're going to be able to brush that off and it's going to get better, but they're going to learn that it's not about the fall. It's about how you get up. And so, um, you know, and a lot of people talk about those kind of principles, but when you're a a parent with a child with, you know, differences, uh, it's a little harder, Mm -hmm. you know, let that leash go. And so that was definitely one of the principles. And then the other thing that Dave Clark, and this was one of the goals my wife and I really had for Gideon specifically, my son, is that we wanted Gideon to have the ability to make others around him feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, because yeah, people are going to stare. People are going to, you know, kids are going to come up and say, what happened to your arms? And, you know, Gideon right. did this all the time. Yeah. Kids and, have no filters. Yeah. And, and, you know, and of course then the parents get horrified and they're, they're like telling their child to shut up and, and we kind of take a different approach. Um, and Gideon's become very good at this. And Dave Clark is very good at this where you become very comfortable and almost don't even see the disability you know, after a very short time, it's like, it's not even there. And, and that's definitely one thing where Dave was a shining example for me and for us, uh, because he's so, and, and part of that's personality too. Um, but it's also a mindset of, of, you know, how you got to think and you don't get offended if somebody says the wrong thing and you don't get, um, upset if a child comes up and says, Hey, what happened to your arms? You know, because it's a child it's it's they're not like being mean and Mm -hmm. so being able to filter that out and know what's mean and what's not mean and um you know and and i think gideon is is as he's become a man now he's 22 years old um is very very good at communicating comfort to people very quickly and so that was a great thing that we learned in bit from dave is there is there a specific strategy that um, Dave or your son uses? I know, again, I can't remember who this was. This is not, this is not my guess, but I remember someone speaking about basically using humor as a way to diffuse the situation. And they just had, they were very quick witted about it. Um, and that's how they made people kind of relax. Is there, is it just a matter of just be yourself and don't worry about it? I think where it would, is the most pr- impressive thing that I know about Dave Clark and, and I can say my son Gideon is that they're just real mm-hmm. and being real is the key because if it, if somebody says something and it hurts your feelings or you don't like the way they said it, it's hard not to be real. It's hard to say, um, you know, there's a, I don't know if we can swear on this show or whatever, but yeah, you can. Uh, it's fine. So, oh, and cause this is just the true story. Dave was in the stadium in a packed out stadium and this is in the mid seventies and he goes into become a relief relief pitcher. Mm-hmm. And there was the, basically the loud mouth, um, you know, fan, you know, the roughneck fan or whatever, probably had his white beater shirt on that kind of thing. And, yeah. and uh, when Dave comes into this on, uh, you know, coming out to be the relief pitcher off his crutches, this guy's yelling. So everybody can hear it, knock the crippled bastard out. And, um, and of course he didn't like that so much. Um, and of course he wound up hiding, trying to hide in his glove and, and doing the middle finger salute to the, to the fans. And it didn't go over so well cause it was an away crowd. And, um, basically, 
you, you know, so I mean, he didn't, he doesn't like that kind of treatment. Right. But if you, you know, you know, and part of one of the things that's a fine line that Dave liked is when he got treated like any of the other players. Right. Um, like when he got brushed back, when he was at the plate, um, he would get, um, you know, somebody would come inside when he was, when he was batting. Uh, we actually have an example of that, of a guy that we talked to here recently and, and uh, that saw Dave play and he, he got mad because he saw somebody brushing Dave back and his crutches were flying everywhere. And Dave was like, Oh no, no, I liked it when they wanted to, they were giving me everything they had and that's what I wanted. Um, they basically, you know, so there's different perspectives there, but humor, Dave is very humorous. Uh, we can joke around Gideon, you know, is very humorous. Um, we don't get caught up into the verbiage of, you know, there's words that you can say, or you don't, you know, if, if you call Gideon uh, the armless boy, we're not going to get upset. Some people would, mm -hmm. you know, um, because he didn't, because that's not the correct sentence these days. Right. Correct sentences. Gideon was born with no arms. You always put the person first. Right. Um, we tend not to get to, you get semantics on all those kind of things. And, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's kind of a, don't get too, you know, don't major on the minors kind of scenario. Right. Um, yeah. So that's, that's what we're dealing with there. At least from a, I don't have a lot of personal experience. Um, so take that for what it is, but it, it's when you're talking about semantics, it seems like not worrying about it comes from a place of, um, thinking about ignorance versus maliciousness. Like often it's probably going to come from a place of ignorance rather than somebody trying to be mean. They just don't know, you know, what would be the preferential way to say something. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's fine lines with all this stuff and obviously right. living in a world where we don't even know what to say uh, <laughs> that can be considered politically incorrect or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I don't need to give examples because probably everybody has their own, but, um, you, you know, I think we need to unwind and not be so uptight. Um, you know, people my age, we were, we were told sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt us. And today everybody's getting all caught up about some words and I'm not worried about the words, you know, because I can, I can choose to let those words pass by. Uh, I don't like bullying. Um, that's why I wrote a story about my story is anti-bullying on my children's book. Dave doesn't like bullying. He didn't like the bullies. Uh, he remembers the bullies, you know, as a, as a child with uh, crutches and braces. Uh, he remembers them by name. Mm -hmm. and, um, he didn't forget them, but he also didn't forget the people that helped him. And so people got to remember that uh, those are just two things you're going to remember in life. The people that really treated you terribly and the people that were kind to you. So that's a pound of kindness. That's Dave's story from when he was younger, right? So it is. Um, the story happened when he was in first grade. And it's one of those stories that Dave, I think the first time he shared it publicly, I had gotten him a, a speaking event at the National Consortium of Academics and Sports. Uh, he was on a panel for diversity. Uh, it was a pretty big thing in Orlando at the then Peabody Hotel and Richard Lapchick's organization and you can Google Richard Lapchick. He's, he's, he runs the National Consortium of Academics and Sports. And Dave was on this panel, and they wanted him to speak 20, 20 minutes before 
the meeting started. You know, people like Jeremy Schapp were there. I mean, you know, it was, it was pretty big, whatever, connected meeting. And D- Dave, this is when Dave used to get up with notes in his hands mm-hmm. um, and no, you know, no kind of keynote situation with multimedia and things like that, like we speak with now. But he literally got up with notes in his hands and shared three stories. And one of them was the story that we now tell all the time. And basically, if we can flash back to 1958, um, and you got this little boy that's realizing he's different when he's in school, uh, because really up until he was in school, he was never made to feel different. You know, mm-hmm. his parents didn't make him feel different. His brothers didn't make him feel different. And now he goes to school and he's different. All the other kids aren't wearing crutches and braces. And he had those like very heavy metal uh, leather braces like Forrest Gump. Yeah. Okay, so very heavy. And his first grade teacher announces a field trip where the whole class will be walking but five blocks away to the fire. So for most kids back then, and even today I found, that's being a fireman is one of the top things that boys still want to be and girls uh, still want to be today. So kids are excited about going to the fire hall in 1958 in first grade when they're six years old, but not Dave. And it was not excited because he knew he was not going to be able to keep up. He knew he was going to get left behind. Uh, and he probably knew he was going to get bullied. Um, his classmates were already doing things like calling him Olio, which rhymed with polio and, and Dave just couldn't, you know, obviously that, those are things that are not fun memories. Yeah. So we flash forward. He had about two weeks to dread this um, coming field trip of being left behind. And he had so much anxiety that he clearly remembers even trying to act sick the morning of the event with his mom. But as he would say, his mom was a tough old lady and uh, was old school. And basically she said, Dave, you're not sick. Uh, get to school and get to school now. And so off to school he goes and he's got all this anxiety building up. And uh, when the teacher is teacher, Mrs. Lewis finally called the class to get in line, Dave remembers going to the back of the line thinking this is going to be the worst day of my life. And um, lo and behold, as he gets in line, one of his classmates and Dave never forgot his name. His name is Ernie Pound and Ernie brought his radio flyer wagon to school that day to pull him. And Dave simply never forgot that act of kindness. You can kind of see it in my background here. And, and um, Dave told that story at this National Consortium of Academics and Sports, and you could have heard a pin drop. But where Dave gets super emotional when he shares this story, even as many times as we've now shared this story, because where I come in is when Dave wrote a book on his life, it's called The Diamond in the Rough, The Dave Clark Story. So when he wrote that book uh, with a local author, um, I was his financial advisor at the time and I was helping him get book signings in the area. And I was just doing these book signings just out of the, you know, because I love this story. We've become friends by now. I was actually pushing him to write the story. And so I'm setting up these books signings and I'm rereading the book while I'm doing that in my office on some you know, break times. And in chapter two is when he shares the story and he thanks Ernie Pound. Well, every time I had read it, and this is probably not the first time, it wasn't the first time, I would get the goosebumps as a father with a child with limitations. I'm sitting here and then I'm like, I've got to find this Ernie Pound. And wound up going to the phone book. It's probably the last time I've ever gone to a phone book. 
<laughs> and I found an Ernst Hound in the phone book, living about 45 minutes away from here. And I had one of those awkward phone calls because back then I think it would have probably said Merrill Lynch, you know, on his caller ID. Oh, yeah. And, um, he was not wanting to talk to me because I asked, uh, so I said, is there any pound there? And somebody goes and gets him. And, and I start telling him that if this is the Ernie Pound that went to kindergarten or first grade and in Corning, that he stanked in a book for something he might not remember. And what he told me on that phone conversation was that he remembered the radio flyer wagon, but his family had left the area in first grade, after first grade. Mm. And Dave and he had not seen each other in 45 years. And in that time frame, um, you know, they both went on their separate ways. And so Ernie wound up coming to a book signing, completely unknown to Dave, puts a book underneath Dave's nose at the coffee shop that we were at and says, sign this one to Ernie Pound. And you could have, the emotions got pretty raw and thick. And every time Dave even tries to share about the reunion, he I actually now in our speaking engagements, I usually talk about the reunion because he's tired of crying in front of everybody. Yeah. You know, because he, he's, he's a wuss now. He's 67 years old. <laughs> uh, and so anyway, so that story, we've been telling it so much. And, and I knew I have, actually have a background in the children's entertainment world in the 90s uh, when I was in Atlanta. And so I just felt like this, it's, it's always about the story. Mm -hmm. The story is teaching kindness. It's teaching... Uh, it's an anti-bullying story. It teaches inclusion, the importance of inclusion and how it makes people feel. And it's such a simple thing. The little boy brought, brought away, but it was never forgotten. Yeah. And so because his name's Ernie Pound, we came up with the title, A Pound of Kindness. Yeah. It's a good story. So how, how, how's distribution going so far, I guess? So we printed like 4,000 last year and I'm yeah. down to a maybe a couple hundred books right now. Okay. Um, we were on a roll. I'd probably be printing more right now if, uh, if it weren't for COVID. Yeah. Because uh, we, were, we were actually getting into some schools. Schools were hiring us to come. They were buying 500 books in some cases at a time. Yeah. Um, you know, all that's been on pause. Uh, we've got one speaking event in October at a college. Um, I don't know how many books we'll sell at the college. Um, but we also spoke uh, at one of the biggest, largest uh, disability conventions in the country last year in Orlando. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was, it's called the Family Cafe. It's like 15,000 people to go to that convention. Dave and I were the final keynotes, uh, specifically talking about this book. And, you know, so we were shedding a few hundred books every time we did something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but it, we, we want to sell millions. We don't want to sell 4,000. Right. Well, I mean, you got to start somewhere. That's correct. And from what I've read about you, it's, I feel like it's only a matter of time, really. Um, it so. seems right. like you've got both plenty of hustle and plenty of brains. So those, that's always a good combination. Well, sometimes I wonder anymore because things, <laughs> uh, things that I thought would be like no brainers turn out to be nothing. Yeah. And things that you wouldn't have ever thought of, like selling honey to make your living so that you can can't do these things, right. come your way and, and, and then you run with it. Um, but I am planning on doing some more children's books. I've got, I don't even have to make these stories up. I just have to package them well. Right. Right. So you were saying you've got a new book coming up. Can you yeah. tell me all about that or? Oh, it's, it's, it's 
curtailed off of the theme of Pound of Kindness. Okay. Uh, Dave and I started an award based on this story like 10 years ago. It's called the Pulling Each Other Along Award. And it literally goes to children, or not just the children, any age person, but somebody that's helping somebody in the disability community. And so when we go to a minor league baseball field or we do a speaking event, um, oftentimes before that event, we have nominations for our award. And in giving out that award, um, it goes to somebody that's deserved of the Pulling Each Other Along Award. And so I got this uh, message during COVID, early on in COVID, about us, somebody wanting us to be a part of his book, a chapter in his book, um, to talk about Dave and talk about Disability Dream and Do or whatever. And his name's Todd Sivan. He wrote the book for Rick and Dick Hoyt. Um, mm -hmm. So people that know the Hoyts out there in that story. And so he knew of our story and we've known each other for a while. And he wanted me to be a part of this book. And so I asked Todd, I said, Todd, how far along are you in the book? Because in my business plan, I have something almost identical to this. And he goes, shoot, tell me what it is. And so I told him and I said, I don't want to just do chapters on inspirational people. I want to do chapters on inspirational people talking about what was it that pulled them along? What was it that helped them? What was it that got them through? And so right now we're pushing a book that's going to be somewhere, be, it's going to land somewhere between 20 and 25 chapters of amazing stories. Um, people like, you know, Rocky Blyer is one of the ones that I can now mention because this chapter is a, uh, we've already interviewed Rocky and he's on board and um, we're doing a, another chapter on Leonard Tose, who was the owner of the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, his granddaughter, Marnie Schneider is writing a chapter um, about the the impact that her grandfather had, not because he was a coach of the Eagles or the owner of the Eagles, is because he started the first Ronald McDonald house. And, and so it's stories like that. And we've got, you know, people with missing legs, military guys, their stories. Um, we've got the a story of a girl named, Aud or a woman named Audie Angel, who is a dancer that's one of the premier dancers with on wheelchairs. Um, but it's not all disabilities either. It's kind of a whole hybrid of of stories of famous, semi-famous stories you would know, stories you wouldn't know, but taking another angle of it and saying, okay, Rocky Blyer, we know you have this incredible story. You were Franco Harris's uh, uh, one-two punch in the in the 70s. Uh, and I don't know, are you familiar with Rocky Blyer's story? No, I'm not. Okay, so Rocky um, was uh, was a great Notre Dame running back. And, and during, or during or sometime during his rookie season with the Steelers, uh, was drafted to Vietnam okay, and took a bullet and a grenade into his leg and uh, actually lost a portion of his foot and wound up coming back and uh, and holds four Super Bowl rings as one of the great one-two tandems in running back history. Um, amazing, amazing man. And um, there's, you know, there was actually a made-for-television movie. So anybody my age, th they know the Rocky Blyer story. Mm -hmm. And uh, when, I, when I met Rocky a couple years ago and we became – literally friends um, because of what we do and all that stuff. And I asked him, I asked him, I said, Hey Rocky, would you be interested in talking about what pulled you along? And uh, he gave us an interview that was literally bone chilling um, the situations. And so we're putting that together. That'll be one of the chapters. And, and I could go on and on because these chapters are pretty exciting. Yeah. I'll pulling each other along book one. Um, I literally went, I had about 50 names to call. I got through about 15 
and I had to stop calling because we already had more chapters than I wanted for the first book. <laughs> so that's where we yeah. are. Yeah. That sounds like you keep yourself busy. Um, as we're starting to run a little short on time, I, this, this is a question. So I'm asking everybody the same question this year um, because it's, it transcends sports and people. Um, but I think it's especially poignant um, for you and maybe Dave as well. Uh, I'm asking everybody, what do you think the purpose of sport is? You know, for me, it was a passion growing up. I mean, whether it was playing Little League or uh, wiffle ball in the backyard with my older brothers, you know, we would keep our stats uh, so you can say we were having math lessons. I mean, there's so many things that we did. Um, but for me, it was also, all right, you got to do one, two, three. You can be good. You can be athletic, but you get to a certain level, you got to be athletic and you got to work hard. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to go against guys that are just as talented as you are or more talented than you are that are working harder. But competition, if we don't keep competition going in our country, uh, we'll, our country will fail. And I think sports is a wonderful training ground. And, and I know this has been stated, and I, I don't want to get political because that's we, – we, we, Dave and I, we stay completely out of the politics of this world. But – the whole, the whole process of what kind of happened where everybody wins and you got to give a trophy to everybody and that mentality, I hope we get away from that. Mm -hmm. um, there's a time for that. There's a time to always be encouraging, and it's not always about winning. Um, but we, sometimes we have to learn how to lose so that we can win more the next time. Mm -hmm. So losing is a wonderful lesson. Um, I didn't win every track meet. I didn't win every basketball game. Uh, I don't like to lose. I thought I was competitive until I met people like Dave Clark. And then I realized how uncompetitive I was compared to people like him. Uh -huh. um, and so we, we learned so much. We learned camaraderie. We learned how to work together, even in, in things like track and field. Um, you would think that's not a team sport, but my college team, we were very much a team sport. Oh, yeah. We were very much pulling each other along. We were helping each other. We were encouraging each other. We were working out together. Yes, we were racing against each other at times too. However, uh, we were teammates mm -hmm. and we were pushing each other. And um, I don't, I don't think of a. For me personally, that was more of a learning lesson than anything I got in the classroom. That's for me. Um, but you know, some people it's music, and I have a music background a bit too. And you have to practice those things. You have to learn those things. Um, and I think all of the arts and it's, it culminates into a more well-rounded life. And to me, sports is um, very, very important. On the other side of it, it's not everything. And it's not everything for everybody. Uh, and we even try to make that case at our Disability Dream and Do Sports camps. It might not be baseball or football or basketball or track or whatever that your child is going to succeed in. But whatever that is, whatever they want to do, let them see how far they can take mm -hmm. and don't hold them back from it. And so, but I think for me, sports was, that was the easy thing. I was fairly athletic. I come from an athletic family. We were competitive. Uh, whether it was playing pickup sticks against my brothers, man, we wanted to win. And, um, and winning and that desire to win makes you better. Yeah, yeah. Um, Doug, if people want to find the book, see what you and Dave are up to, any of that kind of stuff. Where can people find all that? 
Yeah, so the book, the best place to go to order the books or books right now, we have a coloring book that goes along with our uh, children's book that you can't get on Amazon. You can get the children's book on Amazon, but basically uh, they take all the money and we don't like Amazon. So I said that briefly. Um, so, but a poundofkindness.net is uh, the best place to go. And if you use D3Day as your um, promo code, they would get free shipping at least. Okay. Uh, they don't have to put that in there because literally these are how we raise money for our sports camps. You can get Dave's book on there. You can get a combo. There's a collection. Um, obviously, go to aboundofkindness.net. And, um, and then if you want to learn more about the sports camps specifically, go to d3day.com. That's the best place. Although it's not really updated right now. We only have one event that we're working on, and it's in conjunction uh, with the Hartford Yard Goats. Uh, but we have to do it very differently, you know, with all the COVID right. specifications and much smaller. We're limiting it to uh, 25 people. And literally, we're, that's one of the things I had to come home to do was send out the email invite. We just got the website. Uh, we're working in con conjunction with the Miracle League in Hartford for that, for this particular camp. Be, be more day, active once we get the, the COVID yeah. stuff wrapped up again. People are still listening. Uh, D3 yeah. and a pound of kindness.net um, are, are the places to uh, go get our stuff. Sounds great. Thanks for uh, hanging out with me today, Doug. Thanks, Jesse. Yeah. We'll uh, hopefully get to meet with you and talk with you soon.